The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Clean Coders and its employees. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Clean Coders podcast. This week, we're talking to Eric Critchlow. Eric, you want to say hello? Uh, hello again, good people. It's been a little while, but it's also like the, I think, fourth time or so that uh, we've all gotten together. Yeah, something like that. You want to just let people know what's new with you? Oh, wow. That's such an open-ended question. There's you know, so many little things <laughs> going on lately. Since the, you know, the last time we talked, our primary focus, I think, was on a talk I did for Spotify's internal dev conference mm -hmm. that covered quality code in terms of mobile and code coverage and metrics and common pitfalls and how to avoid them. And I did a whole big bit on logging. And we talked about the fact that it was done for Spotify, but I wanted to get it out there for the general public. And actually, just over a week ago, I reshot some of uh, reshot the the entire bit where I'm talking over a slideshow and reshot some other scenes to make it a little more generic. And let's say about a, about a week ago, I put it out there on YouTube. So now it's available for everybody. Awesome. Well, we'll make sure we get a link to that. We'll put it in the show notes, and that way people can uh, click through and go check it out. Cool. I'd love to hear feedback. Yeah, absolutely. Did you work your tail off to get that senior developer gig just to realize that senior dev doesn't actually mean dream job? I've been there too. My first senior developer job was at a place where all of our triumphs were the bosses and all the failures were ours. The second one was a great place to continue to learn and grow, only for it to go under due to poor management. And now I get job offers from great places to work all the time. Not only that, but the last job interview I actually sat in was a discussion about how much my podcast had helped the people interviewing me. If you're looking for a way to get into your dream job, then join our Dev Heroes Accelerator. Not only will we help you get the kind of exposure that makes you attractive to your dream employer, but you'll be able to ask them for top dollar as well. Check it out at devheroesaccelerator.com. I don't think we need to rehash that. I think we hashed it over pretty good last time. Yeah, we, we did quite a bit on that. Although I think there was one piece towards the end, because like I said I, I went off on this thing on logging because it's it's something mm -hmm. that, that is a big deal to me in these last few years. And I explained why in our, our last chat, but that it doesn't get a lot of attention. Um, and I mentioned that when I was at General Motors for years, I tried to get people to buy into this idea and no one would. Finally, now that I, in the start that I'm in, own development from front to back, have been able to decide, I'm gonna do this now. And I just literally this morning, I'm thinking yesterday morning, this morning, last night, yesterday evening, released versions of uh, my iOS and Android apps that support this feature. And mm -hmm. it's, to me, it's the simplest thing in the world, but it's also the most obvious thing in the world. And I'm not personally aware of anyone having done it or talked about it or considered it at the places I've been. And that feature was to, yeah, I've mentioned log everything. And, and so my apps that you see <laughs> are just full of logging statements. And I don't mean log.d on Android or console logs or printf or whatever. I'm talking about a custom logging, not framework, but, but module that you build for your own purposes, customized mm -hmm. to what you do, that gives you maximum information on your app 
on your application. And I've, so I've done that and used the same thing on five, six different projects for years. And, and again, my, so my apps are full of logging statements for my own logging module. Mm-hmm. And so I keep about a running 10 meg log file of basically everything the user does, all the backend calls, all the responses, all the user actions, so that when a problem occurs, I can look at a log and tell exactly how they got there, what was sent out, what was returned, and usually figure out what the problem is. But the problem with that is getting those logs. So, right. you know, most apps have a, a contact support button and then ours, which ours didn't until recently, when I added that in, I automatically attach that log to the app. But when one of our salespeople or support people has a customer with a problem, that requires getting it. Hey, can you go to this screen for me? Can you tap that email button? Can you approve on Android accessing the file system so they can get so the email can get to the log to import the log and attach it to the email to then send it off to, especially if there's a problem, customers are probably mad and they're not Mm -hmm. particularly amenable to can you go jump through these hoops for us so we can try to figure out? What <laughs> so, you know, my thing has always been, how do we do this without having to engage the customer? And, and right. been, we, one thing we did was, was we did have an endpoint on the back end where mm-hmm. really key logging statements specifically related to our Bluetooth interactions would get sent to the back end, but not the whole log file. What I just did was implement a silent push notification and if you understand push notifications, you know, usually you get it, something pops up on your screen and pops up in your, your top bar that says, hey, I got something from this app. You pop it open, you see the icon for the app and you see a message and you tap it and the, and the app opens. But there's such a thing as a silent push notification that the app gets that you have no idea about. And it, to an extent, wakes the app up in the background, at least temporarily, and let you do something like refresh data so that when you bring the Facebook app back up, you're looking at the latest on your wall and not the last that you saw a day ago when you opened it. Usually it's intended for pulling data. Hey, here's a here's a push notification. Let your app know there's new data. Pull data down so when your user jumps back into the app, it's there. For me, it's the other way around. I'm using the silent push notification to say, hey app, I need your logs. Please send me. And the backend will save it off into this folder and then I can go get it and diagnose your problem without ever having to ask you what that problem was. And I you know, I just released it. So it's not like I'm using it yet, but I feel like it's going to be the greatest thing ever. <laughs> That's awesome. We were in- initially going to talk about WWDC, but it sounds like you're really fired up about this. And I kind of want to know a little bit more about it. So you okay if we switch gears and talk about a little bit more of this uh, implementation and stuff like that? We can. I mean, there's there's really not a lot to it. It didn't even take that much effort to do it. It's just something that you have to commit when you don't own, when you don't own your app end to end, mm-hmm. you have to convince architects or, you know, whoever is the lead of the backend team or the business side folks to approve spending time on it. And it just doesn't get done. It's the right. simplest thing in the world, especially if you, if you, you've already got push notifications, you just create a separate one that only does a basically a data packet. And the app gets it. It goes through the same flow. You just, mm-hmm. hey, check this to see if if this key is available in the dictionary. Pull If so, then pull this other object out, this string out from, from the payload and call this endpoint and fire, log off, fire the logs off to it. 
done. Apps all good. And the one thing I, I was worried about was was how long it would take and whether back end process, you know, how much back end processing I needed to understand on the Android side. There's there's a newer facility for doing background processing and and on iOS you have you know ways of going about that. I just didn't want to get too much into it if the simple fact of you get 30 seconds after your app gets a silent push to do something, yeah, that should be enough. But for me, coming from the old day, you know, being a programmer in the 80s on 8-bit systems, <laughs> I think about I think about a 10 meg log file right. is this incredibly huge thing. How could anyone ever try to squeeze that into a 30 second window of sending that back to the back mm-hmm. end. And then the more modern version of me says, 10 megs is nothing. What are you, what are you talking about? That should be the app in running in the background. I should fire that off in a couple of seconds. No big deal. No, I didn't know how it was going to play out, but it seems that it played out fine. And you know, I haven't tried the full 10 meg file yet, but I've thrown a meg and a half, two meg log file at it. And hey, it, it, it just works. And that's the beauty of it. It just works. That, that's really interesting. So a couple of questions that I have are usually you see like a notification that says, hey, can we send your user data to the server before that all happens? So I'm, I'm wondering, did you orchestrate some of that within the app? Now, and you know, there's there's a privacy consideration. And I think about it and say we have pulled out personal information right. from it. So there's nothing really tying this this data to to you so i think i'm okay mm-hmm. you know, the, the same stuff is going on that law could be done in analytics statements and, and a lot of apps already integrate analytics that attach data to events that's the same data in terms of a user that i'm doing in the log and the person doesn't know that analytics is being used and you know right. how much of their stuff is being fired back in analytics events so I, I felt okay with with this implementation and not having to ask the user, hey, can I do this? Yeah. The the other thing that I'm I'm a little curious about is so are you storing this in some kind of like local storage or is it on the file system in iOS or so it's it's stored as a file. The okay. log files are stored as a file on in the app. Mm-hmm. And again, just to keep it from getting ridiculously big, you know, I just keep it at 10 megs and first in, first out. You get a new log file, check and see if we've, ex- we've passed this size. If so, truncate this amount of data and keep writing. Mm-hmm. There has been some concern in the past that when at GM, I did like push this idea some. And one, the, the head of architecture, you know, questioned, hey, is it possible that, that doing this writing is bogging the app down at all because of the amount of stuff being stored? And there, because of the amount especially with the Bluetooth stuff and, and the interactions that were being logged. Like, you know what? It is possible that maybe, especially when you're, when you've reached the size of the log and you're having to truncate pieces off and then rewrite, you know, this big chunk, maybe that, that's a possibility. We can profile that and see. But where I'm at now, and I did make some changes to, to how the logs are buffered and written in chunks and not just every time a new line comes in, write it out. So you know, I've done some things to to try to keep it from bogging things down. And I haven't I haven't actually profiled it, at least not on the current apps. But mm-hmm. even back at GM, I didn't see where it was causing any kind of substantial hit. And again, you know, as time goes on, I always mentally fight with the idea of, 
how how ridiculous am I being? How much of me is falling back on mid 1980s eight bit me thinking, how could you possibly try to do this and write a file at the same time as an app's running and maybe doing something else? That's you're, you're <laughs> overwhelming things. And then thinking I'm dealing with a processor that's running dozens and dozens of processes simultaneously doing all kinds of things, including yes. writing system log files and apps that run dozens of threads, you know, they do all these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. There's the part of me that just doesn't believe uh, that hasn't caught up to current times yet and doesn't believe that you can do a lot of stuff without bogging today's modern microprocessors down. Yeah, microprocessors that you carry in your pocket. That do what whole rooms couldn't do, yeah. you know, 30, 40 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when I was a kid, we took field trips to the university to see the supercomputers, right? And yeah. Yep. Those supercomputers don't compare to what I carry around in my pocket, right? Exactly. But then there's the part of me that says, okay, you know that, but yep. there's still the chance that you don't really know the internals and how things are done. That's fair. Um, and so it there is a legitimate possibility that stuff yep. that you think is not a big, how could this be a big deal on today's processors? And even, you know, even writing to file systems that aren't actually hard drives in these, <clears throat> in these little devices, <clears throat> there still might be some, you might profile this and find out that you've introduced a bottleneck. It is still possible. So yeah, I, I in my mind, I sometimes vacillate on on which one is more true. And I think one of the things that, that I've said many times over the years, and I think I've said to you before, I'm, I'm loathe to criticize other programmers for various reasons, but I, yeah, I'm not in their shoes. I don't know what constraints they're dealing with. I, I, so I really shouldn't criticize their stuff. <laughs> and of course, every time you say that, the next word that comes is, but, but. <laughs> so, the but is, you know, over the years, I've commented that how much, you know, from 1990-ish until now, how much more powerful is, just as an example, Microsoft Word, and how much more does it do with word processing compared to how big the code has grown from what it was back then? And the fact that it doesn't seem to run any faster or much faster. There are still mm-hmm. things you do that I would think would happen instantly. This is stuff you could do in 1990 that might have taken two or three seconds. Well, that should be instant now, shouldn't it? With the increases in processing power. And yet, maybe it still takes a second. So I that's just part of it. I don't fully grasp what's going on, maybe in the operating system or what's going on in, in some interpreter, depending on what you know, how apps are written that still causes things not to to have, you know, software has not increased, except for maybe games, software hasn't sped up and kept up mm-hmm. with the rate of processor explosion in speed. Right, fair enough. One other thing that I was wondering about is that you're logging so that you can catch issues or debug issues when they arise. So I'm assuming that you might be looking through logs to see common issues. But then I'm also wondering if a particular issue crops up, do you have a way of tying a reported issue to a log or set of logs? On occasion, something happens to where there's a reported issue that doesn't happen very frequently that causes me to add a new log statement. But as I mentioned in our last talk, that's that's for me almost a failure. Mm-hmm. If I have to, because re- you know, we're not talking about a website, we're right. talking about a mobile app. And if I've got to add a new logging statement to a mobile app, in order for that customer to get it, I've got to do a new release 
that I've either got to force them to upgrade to, or they've got to choose mm-hmm. to upgrade to. And right. then that same rare occurrence has to happen again. Mm-hmm. And I have to put the right logging statement in the right place with the right amount of information to catch it. And then I've got to get that log from that person, you know, prior to this whole silent push notification thing. So that that's a long cycle I have to go through to try to catch that rare problem. And then if I if I misunderstood, if I didn't get something right, well, I think it's probably happening here and I didn't realize it's happening over there and it happens again and they tell me it happened again and I didn't log anything. Man, I didn't get the logging statement in the right place. Mm-hmm. You know, that cycle is horrible to have to go through. So to me, that that's a failure, but it does happen. What I would rather do, and this is why I say that, I've got logs everywhere. You know, a, a single 20 line method might have three or four different logging statements in it for anything that I think might be of interest, might show me where a problem exists, has something to do with uh, some kind of variable that could be different here. That's why I flood my stuff with logging so that hopefully I don't have to do special releases just to cover a given issue. When that issue comes up, I can look at the existing logs and and get pretty close to figuring out what happened. that's, That's the goal. Mm, that makes sense. And funny, once again, now we spent like 15 minutes talking about logging, and it, it always just amuses me mm-hmm. because, as I've told you before, I've never I've worked in this for 28 years now. Not 28, 26, 26. Come a couple months from now, in mobile since 2008, had you know, worked in big and small companies, had all kinds of conversations, been on teams, had conversations. I don't think I've ever had a conversation where we talked about logging, you know, where anybody has right. an excitement over logging. And yet I'll sit here with you and go on for 15, 20 minutes about the, you know, the coolness of logging. No, it's true. I mean, most of my development experience is web. And I mean, I've added logging lines and I've turned it on in production. But yeah, as soon as we find the problem, I always take it back out, turn it back off. And that, I mean, that, that has its place. Absolutely. But for me, it, and I see that in you know the code I have now that, that I inherited when I took over this, this position. Mm-hmm. And some of it is code that's been commented out. Some of it's code that's, that's been left in production that probably should, that certainly shouldn't have been. And, and I, as we've talked about before, I totally get that on the, the back end side, but on the mobile side, like, nah, that stuff is not, is not temporary. When I do it, it's not meant mm-hmm. to be temporary and turned on and off. It is there and it is meant to stay there. And one of the hardest things I have is trusting other people to put it in, in their code. Because if you don't, it's like testing. And, and, and uh, we talked somewhat about this last mm-hmm. time as well. And I talk about it in that session that I did. A lot of mobile developers are not devotees of unit testing. And they're <laughs> not trusting them to put it, to, to, to do unit tests, if you're not looking over them and, and forcing them to, to show their tests every time you do a code review or whatever, they're not doing it. If if you've got people who don't really believe the logging is that big of a deal or that important, they're not thinking about it as they're writing code and mm-hmm. they're not putting it places where it needs to go. So then you've got to come back after them and go add logging statements to all the code that they wrote, which the only good thing about that is, is it's a good way to learn code and how how it's structured, how what's in, it's it's intended to do. It's like a code review. You know, like if if you wrong the if you log the wrong thing, it's even worse than not logging anything at all. You mm-hmm. get this log, and if you trust the log, okay, I see that happen. I see this this data with it. That's good, and move on. If if they didn't really care, and they and they just threw something in there and, and logged it incorrectly, or if you, 
have to add log statements to someone else's code and you didn't fully understand it. Now you're logging the wrong thing. And when you rely on these logs, it's taking you down the wrong path. No different than if you were you hit a breakpoint in the debugger and it just fed you random. <laughs> this value yeah. right now is 37 when it really isn't 37. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to trust those tools. Yeah. So do you have an example of a place where this has actually made a difference? Saved you effort, saved you time, helped you track down a bug before you would have found it otherwise? Um, Again, put me on the spot there, huh? In the current app that I'm working with, which, again, I didn't write it, so I've gone back and added logging after the fact. Off the top of my head, I can't remember for sure if... I mean, I know that, that... Ops has come to me and said, hey, we're having this issue. Okay, send me the log. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's what's happening there. The, the, right. the back-end response was this, and it's missing this field, and, and that's why it's going down that path or maybe why the apps crash. That has certainly happened. Um, where I used it, I, I mentioned to you before, that would, that would, as a general motors working on Bluetooth stuff, and that's where I originally mm-hmm. understood the importance of this because these Bluetooth interactions were problematic. Um, that is where I got the most benefit out of it. You know, logging every packet of data going to and from this Bluetooth device in the phone, logging when the operating system said the phone was in was in Bluetooth range, and then you try the connection attempt, and maybe the phone goes out of range while you're still negotiating, and seeing that that I there is no way I could have debugged our Bluetooth processes interacting between this phone and this vehicle with this custom Bluetooth module in it without having logging. Right. So in that case where it was inherently unreliable or where you had kind of an unbounded set of unknowable circumstances, it really helped you to figure out what was happening in a lot of these cases and, and handle most of the at least the common undesirable cases. Yeah, exactly. Because you know, we we had our test vehicle at the office here, and I would have laptop in hand and phone, and have breakpoints in. Okay, when it gets to this stage, break. When it gets to that stage, break. Mm-hmm. And that alone, you know, when when you break, you stop a process. And so, if if part of the issue is the timing, if part of the issue is this Bluetooth negotiation needs to happen in X amount of time, you know, putting a breakpoint in, mm-hmm. it lets me know you got to this place, but it doesn't necessarily give me the full picture. And people out in the field, yeah, when you're dealing with, it's a whole different world if what you have, the app you work on is Microsoft Word or the, the Notes app in iOS. And so pretty much everyone's doing the same thing and everything that's happening is based on user input or app processing. It's not difficult usually to reproduce a problem or figure out what's going on. When you're relying, it kicks it up a notch when you're relying on input from third party. So when you're having to hit a back end to get data back, okay, that adds a new level of complexity, but you can usually simulate stuff in the back end and and you can write code that delays the back end responses and you write unit tests that can delay code from back end responses and, and tweak the back end responses and use test data within the app to, to get a decent feel for that. So it's not terribly difficult. But when you're dealing with communicating with hardware that's not plugged in, that's wireless, and then who knows what the strength of the connection is, what happens in the system software, because let me tell you, there's some versions, many versions of Android that do not have great Bluetooth system software 
a bunch of different devices on different implementations that different companies use and different chipsets that they use. There are so many variables when dealing with that, that they, you just can't account for all these variables. And certainly if you're just sitting in your closed environment, like I'm going to simulate this, or I'm going to figure this out, this by looking at cutting out. You have to be in either a, a tester's hands or a customer's hands who's dealing with device X with vehicle Y under conditions such and such <laughs> that gets all those variables that blast at you a a unique condition. Right. No, that makes sense. That's the so what kind? Yep. So so what what kinds of things are you logging? Are you logging? Because half the time when I'm uh, doing a print statement or uh, a logging statement, it's I got here. <laughs> step one, step two, step three, step four, step five, yep. step six. Which step did I? Oh, step four. We didn't get to step five. So something happened between that line and yeah. this. Line. For me, and, and I know there's logging frameworks out there, and and I know Apple did quite a bit with logging at WWDC this past time. There's there's some new logging stuff they did that uh, it might have even been WWDC a year ago. I'm, I'm not even remembering now if it was this year. Uh, actually, it was last year. Last year WWDC they introduced some cool new logging stuff. But as usual, it was only with the latest version of iOS. And a lot of times we try to ship with earlier versions. So mm. can't use that yet. But there's logging frameworks out there that, that do all kinds of cool things. But as I've mentioned in our previous talks, I'm, I'm not just a not invented here guy. I'm kind of a not invented by me. guy. <laughs> so I, I like doing things the way I like to do them. And so I do mm -hmm. tend to to reinvent the wheel and roll my own stuff. And so I wanted a logging system that did this, that was customized for this case, not I'm using someone else's logging system that's generalized and trying to tweak it to what works for me. So I wrote my own logging stuff and, you know, I have, you know, and I'm sure the systems do too, but just what I did, I've got categories of just, this is just info. The highest level doesn't have really any big impact. You could, you could filter that out and, and no big deal. You know, this is user input. Okay, user tap that button. I, I know that the user did an action and that triggered such such and such. This is notification. So the app got notification and caused it to do this. And that's what, what took me down this path. This is back in communications. I fired off an API call and this is what I got returned. And attaching data, this is exactly the data I sent to the back end. And this is the raw data that the backend returned to me. And then there's errors. Okay, I, I got this exception. Here's the exception. So, and then I can go in and filter. What exactly am I just looking for errors? All right, just give me that, that subset of, of these logs. Am I looking for errors plus the backend communications? You know, and then I just scale up until, all right, up to the, in, uh, the level of info. This is absolutely everything. So jumping into a view controller on iOS or I launched this fragment on Android. Oh, because maybe something is screwy with the, the initialization of the fragment. And, and so it blows up before it gets to the on view created lifecycle method on Android. So I'm logging just as info. Hey, this method was reached and this fragment was launched. And you know, mm -hmm. it, it, it just a whole lot of stuff. Like I said, I'm logging everything. Right. No, that makes a ton of sense. So what's capturing it on the back end then? So it's saving to a file and then, you know, send the, the silent push notification off. The app gets it. The app reads that file, 
turns it into a string and fires it off to a backend call, which then saves it out to a folder on the server. Okay. And I know it's it's our admin site. This user's having an issue. Go mm-hmm. pull that user up on the admin site. There's a button, retrieve logs. Tap that button. You sure you want to do this? Yeah, I'm sure. Here's the here's the file name that the app is being sent. Keep this file name, and so I know what to go back and you know that's for mm-hmm. the admin folks, the uh, the ops folks. Let Eric know <laughs> that he's looking for a log with this name on it, and and tell me right. what the problem was. And now I can I can go pull that in a few minutes. And, you know, you you don't know when a silent push is going to be delivered. They're not ever guaranteed to be delivered. No push notification is. They usually are, especially if you send too many silent pushes in a certain period of time. They're really not guaranteed to be delivered. But assuming they are, depending on on the phone's battery, depending on the the Wi-Fi connection, you know, the the strength of the connection, it may delay running the app. So it may delay processing this. It may be minutes before I get that log back, but at some point in time, it should show up. All right, go get it. This is what you're looking for. Go de- go de- debug, go investigate. Right. Sounds good. And that's all custom built on the back end. Yeah. <laughs> we, uh, I think we've got in before about you know, me talking about working at a startup and an early stage uh-huh. startup and kind of a bootstrap startup to where you, you reach out and you get you can't exactly go the pre, you know, post-funding high-priced <laughs> right. So you do what you can, and you you get a team that can get a job done, but they don't necessarily do the the the. Hmm, how am I putting this? The don't necessarily follow best practices on things, and and so you get a a back end that, and even to some extent, some mobile apps that don't always have the best code in them and, and don't do best practices and don't use standard frameworks. <laughs> yeah, it's it's an interesting undertaking. But as a guy who's just been doing mobile for the last, what are we at now? I started in 2008, so almost 13 years. It makes it easier. You know, when you've got code that it could be written by a novice, it makes it easier for another novice to jump in and understand what they did. Right. No, <laughs> that makes sense. Are you under increasing pressure to ship code faster than ever before? Then it's time to work smarter with Raygun's modern approach to error and performance monitoring. Raygun gives you instant visibility into the health of your software, and what makes it so unique is that it not only tells you when something's gone wrong, it shows you exactly where it's gone wrong and how to fix it, right down to the line of code. Made by developers for developers, Raygun has built a suite of monitoring tools that are used and loved by thousands of software teams every day. Monitor every corner of your tech stack with widespread language support and native integrations with GitHub, Jira, Slack, Bitbucket, Octopus Deploy, and more for even greater visibility. Visit Raygun.com to resolve issues faster and deliver flawless digital experiences for your users. That's Raygun.com to get started on your free 14-day trial with plans starting from as little as $4 per month. Well, and and what you're saying, I mean, that's how I got into programming. Because I had taken programming classes in college. I thought programming was kind of a dumb game honestly Hmm. when i graduated and then i was working at a startup and we were answering emails for tech support i was running support they hired me basically because i'd done it so long that i could troubleshoot windows over the phone without seeing the screen and they had just gotten featured in the wall street journal for their pro offering for business right and so they were just opening up phone support and so yeah did phone support and we got inundated. And so we went to the CEO and we said, we are getting completely overwhelmed and we need a ticketing system, right? And he said, he said, oh, that's nice. 
No. <laughs> and so we went and built one in Ruby on Rails. And that and it went from programming's a dumb game to wow, this is really fun and it's pretty useful too. So the rest is history, right? I, you know, I got into code. So it's it's real interesting that yeah, you know, it's it's a process that that a lot of companies go through. And for some of us, it's how we got into this in the first place. So yeah, and uh, you know, I enjoy it. And and yeah, I got into it as a hobby. Uh, you know, right. I didn't go to college for it because I didn't want to ruin that hobby. But sometimes you think again, we're trying not to to be you know too critical. But sometimes you think you this may not be for you. <laughs> it may not be the thing that you should have gone in on you when when you step into a project, and I won't name which project, but and and you look at the the database and you see there's there's no such thing as a foreign key anywhere. Well, mm-hmm. that's kind of interesting. How these entities are okay. And you see that user data is being stored in the clear, including passwords, um, plain text. And then you look at some of the API calls and the app is about users interacting with other users and searching other users. And you see that this, this unencrypted data is one user searches on other users, they get a ret- so I mean I struggle with how to even ask you this question because it's a stupid question and it's an obvious answer. But you know, you write an application and you say, I want one user to be able to search other users. When I get a response back with a list of other users, what should that response object be? Should it be a subset of the data of those other users that are that is relevant? to the person doing the searching that only shows mm-hmm. them what they need to know? Or should it be the entire user object from the database that includes their unencrypted password and personal data? Probably shouldn't be the latter, but I walked into a project and that's exactly what was there. So you're telling me if all I have to do is, is make my laptop a, a hot point, an access point, a hotspot, and have my phone use that for its internet access. Oh, and because this app is running on HTTP, I don't even have to, to worry about the, the proxying stuff. I can just download Charles Proxy, which is a free application, mm-hmm. and scan the traffic and have this user run this app and search for other users. And I'm going to get a display that's going to show me every other user they found, their username, their password in the clear, their other personal information about them. Wow, that's... That's not something a professional programmer, much less a professional consultancy, should ever have done. It's interesting. And there are a handful of things that are going through my head. So where do I start? I mean, for one, uh, we had a conversation, Bob and I did, about he has his book coming out, Clean Clean Craftsmanship. Clean Architecture. No, Clean Craftsmanship. It's coming out in a couple of months. We talked about about what professionalism is, right? And this falls squarely within some of the ethics and practices and things, you know, that you should be doing as, as a craftsman, right? right? right. And uh, so, so it's interesting, you know, that we're diving into this. But the other thing is, is that it kind of, it falls outside, I guess, of some of the default teaching that goes on when we're just showing somebody how to make an app, right? It's like, hey, here's how you pass the object that you get over the wire, right? When, right. when, you, when you respond to an API and nobody's teaching them basic security concerns or performance concerns when you're talking about, hey, there's no foreign key 
no index, no, no nothing on the database, right? And so it's it's interesting that the, that we kind of head down this road. By the same token, I had another conversation this morning for Adventures in Machine Learning, and we were talking to an author for one of Manning's books, and his book is Python for Bioinformatics, and it's pretty much aimed at people who aren't full-time programmers who are writing code to manage data and machine learning and things like that for bioinformatics, right? So the, they're, they're not writing the entire algorithm and things like that, but they need to be conversant with enough with code to be able to talk to the people who are doing the heavy lifting for the programming. Okay. And in his book, he teaches them TDD, right? So we got into that. And it's the same idea, right? We should be teaching people these things, right? It's okay, you're going to build this app. And so most apps have user authentication. And so for your user authentication, yeah, you need password encryption. You need, you know, salted password encryption, right? You need, you if you're doing APIs, yeah, you don't, pa- you don't pass the password. You don't even pass the encrypted password, right? Things like this, like you're talking about, right? We, we need to be putting these things into the fundamentals that we teach as an industry. I mean, some of this, it seems obvious if you've been doing this for a while, but I do blame the industry a little bit in that we don't teach these things as fundamentals when we're talking about basic architecture, and it should be there. True. And I, from what you're saying, I guess I can understand if... But on the other end, there, there is some personal responsibility that goes into this too, right? That or at least, um, you know, okay, a junior level person might think exactly what you're saying. Hey, I just... Yeah, user needs this information about another user back. Hey, mm-hmm. there's a user object. Send that without thinking yeah. it, but someone either in a code review or someone who's above yeah, the you would think level so, right? should have caught that and said, no, so let me explain to you. And it'd be pretty easy to mm-hmm. explain why you don't do this. Right. But there's code. Did then. they not have somebody at a senior level there? From my understanding, it was the senior level people who did <laughs> Did, you know, it was the junior level people did the maintenance Ouch. work, but the senior level people did the initial, the initial implementation. Like, okay, me the senior level people did this. That really concerns me about your yeah. entire operation. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a different level of concern. I mean, I I would assume that yeah, somebody picked it. Let's say they wrote it in Rails, just because that's what I'm familiar with, right? And so I could see somebody, you know, they pick up the book and you know, here's basic CRUD. Okay, I need basic CRUD for. A, you know, an object, and I'm going to do a user object, and I'm going to put up a form, and they can put in a password and a user, and I don't realize that there's a library that does all this stuff for me and does it mostly correctly, mm-hmm. right? But yeah, the senior level people should know better. Oh, absolutely. And when it doesn't happen, that, you know, that that's a reason for concern. And, yep. you know, Bob is talking some of his, his talks about you know, the need for professionalism and, and mm-hmm. the need to self-regulate before it gets imposed on us because one of these days, a software developer is going to kill somebody. Not that it hasn't already happened. A software developer is going to kill a bunch of people. Yeah. And then regulation is going to get imposed on us. And he's probably absolutely right. And, and mm-hmm. hey, I'll be, I'm always honest about this stuff. I, I say I don't always use best practices. I, I do roll my own instead of using highly thought of and respected third-party libraries to various things. Mm-hmm. I'm a one of the first places I worked that probably the third place I think I worked at fourth place back in 98, 99, the director of development there called us code slingers. <laughs> and you guys mm-hmm. just, you know, we we tell you we need this and you just go out there and start slinging code. 
I'm an indie developer. Hey, I didn't, I mentioned, I didn't go to college for this. So nobody taught me anything really. Uh, self-taught, writing my own programs that just happened to turn into a profession. And I'm still that at heart. We get done here in a couple of hours. I'm going to be working on porting, continuing to port my game from iOS over to Android because that's my favorite thing to do. And that's, I'm looking forward to the weekend so I get more time to do it. I, that's the kind of stuff I like doing. I like code slinging. I mentioned you before, it took me forever. I'm still not a TDD person. Uh, I'm certainly not writing a line of test code to fail and then writing a line of production code to pass it. No, that's, that's not me. I do some test code, some unit test code for the underlying infrastructure stuff, but in a, especially the mobile app, not the not the majority of the code that goes into view controllers. Mm-hmm. There's a reason I don't that if I when I've seen ads for, hey, come work for this medical company writing software that controls pacemakers. No, thank you. Because I understand <laughs> that there's a level of professionalism and security that needs to go into that that not that I don't or can't have, but that I just don't want the responsibility for. It is mm-hmm. so much more fun for me when I can just go in and code sling and have fun and, and yeah. do some things like the logging stuff to try to, you know, to try to be somewhat professional, but to have the peace of mind that I'm not going, to, that when a bug comes up because I missed something, it's not going to kill somebody. Right. Yeah, it's it's definitely... I mean, there are definitely levels to this, though I do believe that most of us are writing code that if you screw it up, it's not going to kill somebody, right? Right. I mean, but what is happening more in what in what is the case here, I am working with code and now owning code. The I'm director of development, so whatever goes mm-hmm. out falls on me. It's your fault. I, yep. I am owning code that could easily lead to someone's identity being stolen. And, mm. and that's not that's not death, but that's not insignificant. That's fair. Yeah. There's a certain level of responsibility that's got to go with that, too. Yep, Makes sense. Yeah. I had that fight at work Wednesday. So and, <laughs> I, and, and, I, and I basically said, I'm not doing this. So what do you want us to do? I want you to let me let the people who deal with that data upload it on their own. Yeah, it is. In Bob's last book. He talked to clean, clean, was that clean architecture? Was that I so, think it was clean architecture. The last year's book was, he talked about the whole, the agile manifesto and what was, no, that was clean, clean agile. agile. And one of the things that was essential to it was the developers having the ability to say no. And, and, you know, I, I did a, you know, I did the afterword in that book and I, I got a pre-release copy to, to read through and, and get feedback on. And one of the things I said about it, and one of the things I said in the, in the talk that I did, most of us are not in that position that you just said you're in this week to be able to say, no, I'm not going to do it <laughs> because most of us. Are oh, they were not we happy, but you, you I, I don't know how much jeopardy you felt like you were in when you said, or if any at all. There are some people, some people in any development organization are at a level where they feel like, yeah, people aren't going to be happy, but I can say no. I, I, I got that power where I can say no, and they're not going to be able to do anything about it. They're going to have to accept it and work with me on it. A lot of programmers don't have that confidence. You know, don't mm-hmm. believe they could say no. Uh, they believe they said no. They're going to be told, shut up and do it or else, and or else is you won't be here anymore. Or at the very least, the next time they get reviewed, you're, you're a difficult person. And so, you know, your, your rating is lower because 
you're you just tend to be difficult. So it's nice when when one of us is in that position where we can say no and, and mm-hmm. say, hey, here's the, I'm not just saying no to say no, here's the reasons. But I think for a lot of people in the field, they just don't have that. They, they aren't at that level, or at least they don't have the confidence that they're at that level. Yeah, I don't think they would have fired me. And I don't think they were in a position to basically say do it or else. That's but, so you had leverage. <laughs> you have a fair amount of confidence and I'm important enough yeah. that I can do this and they can't fire. Yeah, I think I think it could have come up in my annual review or whatever. But I don't know. I mean, they hired me to be a professional. So it's, hey, look, you know, we're you hired me to do this job and that's not doing this job. So it would be interesting if more of us took that approach, regardless of whether or not we felt confident in our ability to do so and not suffer consequences. So yeah, if we went the approach yeah. that Robert wants us to do and and all be craftsmen, you know, even the juniors mm-hmm. strive for that craftsmanship. And part of you know, part of that being, no, this is not not this is a bad idea. This is wrong. This yep. could have disastrous results. That would be my fault if I did it. Yep. I'm going to implement it. So I'm not going to implement it. Now, if we had a, a field, an industry full of people that went that route, it would it would be a whole different world in software. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, a lot less software would get released. Things would get released, but the the time between releases would be a lot longer. And reports you hear of, hey, such and such just had a big data breach, <laughs> and fifty million of you know accounts, uh, pad, uh, credit card numbers got out in the wild. That would probably happen a lot less. Yeah, I think the nature of that would change. I think the frequency would change. I don't know if the release cycles would get that much longer, really. I think initially they would, like if everybody just started standing up. I think initially they would, right? Because we'd all of a sudden have all this technical debt that the different companies had that we tolerated for na- for a while and now we're not going to. But I think eventually we would just get used to doing things with the better practices. and. We would just do it the the right way, and so yeah, some things would take take longer, and other things I don't think would. It'd be interesting. I don't think we're going to get there, and I know that's no, that's been bothered, been pushed for a while. But it would be interesting if it did. I'd love to see how things would change in in the industry as a whole if if we went in that direction. Well, you see this in in politics. You see this in a whole bunch of other movements, right? Where it's like if everybody who didn't like X stood up, right? But people tolerate it because they don't want to be the first one to stand up and stand out, right? If they knew that everybody else who kind of thought the same way they did would stand up, yeah, the, the thing would change. And so it's it's always an interesting conversation. But it's also interesting to see, you know, to what extent, because sometimes it does happen where everybody kind of stands up and says, yeah, we're not doing this anymore. And and we do see those those changes come through within an industry or a movement or whatever, right? And yeah, I'd be I'd be really fascinated to see what would happen if yeah if if more people would say no we're not doing it this way and it, yeah because we're heading down the road toward this kind of a problem. Oh, absolutely! And you know, I have to stand up and take ownership of of my own culpability in that. Yeah, you know, I talk about these these issues that you know mm-hmm. I realize existed in this existing code base. It was months from the time I became aware that these problems existed until I actually fixed them. Because you know, I knew yeah. what the roadmap was. I knew what the the people above me considered important. And I knew they had lived with this since before I was ever around. 
So, okay, I'm going to do these things you guys consider important. And eventually when I get an opportunity, I'm going to get to dealing with this tremendous security hole that I'm well aware of exists mm -hmm. here. And months go by and like, okay, now I'm getting to that. Hopefully nothing happened in the time between now and when I first became aware of it, but it actually affected somebody. Well, and that was that was part of the argument on Wednesday when I put my foot down was so we're we're hitting some timelines, right? And the particular thing that I put my foot down is part of this process that has to be completed in a few weeks. And I said, we're not doing it the way we did it last year because the way we did it last year isn't isn't okay. And they're saying, well, we have to have this done in a few weeks. And so that was the, okay, well, then we better figure out a way. Here's the minimum you know, amount of work that has to happen in order to mitigate at least the worst of this, right? There are still major issues with that <laughs> process, right? Mm -hmm. But this mitigates at least the biggest liability piece of it, right? And then we've got to fix the other big issues with it before next year, right? And so I'm, but that that was the compromise that we made was we're going to handle this major liability piece and then we're going to handle these other parts. But I put my foot down in March and told them we weren't going to do it this way. And so then it, they, they kicked the can down the road, you know, five months and then came back and said, well, now we don't have time to fix it. And that's when I said, <laughs> oh, that's what you think. Let's and go it check was, the record. Well, let's go back to March yeah. and check the record. Uh, here's the email I sent you back then that detailed exactly what this issue was. And, and now you ignored it. Well, the other thing is, is that they, they basically had to also do the arithmetic and say, technically, we can do this without you. But that means that we have to work around you with these other people whose job it is not. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's just not worth it. it. It just turned out to be way more hassle than giving me a couple of days to figure out how to do it another way. It's funny when 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 someone at the <laughs> development level, whether it's an architect or a senior or whatever, is more concerned, there is our own personal sense of responsibility that mm -hmm. says, no, I can't do that thing. But there is also, you you use the word multiple times, liability. I'm, you know, I'm looking out for the company here. This is right. going to put the company in a very bad position if we do this. And right. I'm trying to think about the whole thing, the, the company, you know, top to bottom. Mm -hmm. You're in a position above me where you're not. You're thinking about yeah. hitting someone's timeline that's above you. It's going to look bad on you if you don't hit it. Mm -hmm. You're thinking about getting chewed out for whatever, not getting something done. You're not thinking about the company and liability and yeah. what can happen because you'll be able to fall back on, hey, I'm just following orders here. I, I was told we had to hit this date, so we hit this date. Yeah, but you the flip side is the, the because thing. you did bring up, hey, I, I had to work on this other stuff. And in the meantime, so you made some trade-off decisions. And I think sometimes we do get into that place where we do have to make those decisions, right? It was like, I worked on this other stuff and then I got to the kind of the the, the critical security issues. And I'm not saying that those aren't valid things to, to be considering. But yeah, at some point, you've got to make these things, these important things matter. And yeah, that, that's all I'm really trying to say. Because I, I don't know all the considerations you made when you put off fixing these issues. You know, right. you're like, I, I have to admit, I put them off. But I don't, know, I don't know what all the considerations were. I don't know if you were under the gun. I don't know if... If you, if you didn't do those things, if the company was going to be in a really tight spot. So you do have to make those considerations as well. But yeah, the other thing is, is 
when you're looking at it from the standpoint of protecting the company, you know, you're working for a startup. And so if there's a security breach, yeah, it looks bad for you and your users are going to be ticked off. I work for a multinational financial firm. And so if there's a security breach for us, it's going to be on the front page. Oh, absolutely. And so that was the other part as I'm trying to tell them, look, you know, if there's a, you know, and, and there have been breaches for where we're storing this data right now that we shouldn't be. There have been breaches of this kind where somebody could conceivably grab this data, right? And so we need to make sure it's not there. Oh, not long before I left GM, there was a you know, big deal that popped up of a tremendous security breach in the data of, of our, our back end. And I've mentioned you before, when I first started there, it was like a startup within the organization. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and That's the, where we're at. The guy at the top said, we're going to move fast. I've said this exact same thing to you before, I think even in our, in our last conversation. We're going to move fast. We're going to break things. We're going to have bugs in production and we're going to fix them and deploy them and roll on and keep going. We you know, fast, fast, fast. This is the, mm-hmm. this is our culture. This is how we do things. And until they got rid of him with that probably a year before I left, that was still kind of the mantra. Even once once we shipped and once we were bigger, and once we had 100,000 app downloads and once we were out there in 19 different markets and actually generating revenue and having people's personal information, we were still on that same track. And then something comes up of, oh my God, we've got this in tremendous security hole where mm-hmm. someone could very easily go in here and download all of our user data. And that is tens of thousands of, of people, customers. Well, how did this happen? Well, this happened because the word from on high was we're going to move fast and we're going to just get stuff working and we're going to break stuff in production. And when we figured out, we'll fix it. Hey, we just figured it out. Now we'll go fix it. But yeah, I think a lot of yeah. things changed at that point. Yeah, we're not this little startup within an organization, within a large multinational you know, corporation anymore. We're now a, a business unit of a multinational corporation. Yep. And this break things in production and fix them, that mentality is not flying anymore. And I don't think that's the reason they got, I think it probably happened after he left, but that whole mentality was like kicked out of the organization completely and a more buttoned down corporate culture and mentality brought into that organization. Yeah, absolutely. Hey folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. All right. Well, we're kind of uh, past our scheduled time, and I don't want to take up too much more of yours, but uh, is there anything you're working on now that you want people to go check out? It amazes me that we've literally gotten through an hour of time. Talk, I mean, this went a total different direction than I would have ever thought is when we started. Yeah, that, that we've spent the time. Yeah, it's it is always a fun conversation. I always oh, always the chats and we, we, I hope other people enjoy the conversation and get something out of it too. <laughs> out of it too. Yeah, currently, the 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 iOS dev series is still out there. You know, we there's still never been a, a decision or discussion on doing an, an iOS Dev 201 series. Not sure where where that is or where it's going to be. But even with the invention of Swift UI, there there is still because it's some people still consider it not ready for prime time. And I don't cover Swift UI in that that series. It is still valid. It is still pertinent in today's world of iOS development. So yeah, I'm still encouraging and hoping people people get something out of it and still go out there and utilize it. 
me personally, my yeah, I, I don't talk much about the startup I'm working on because we're still uh, early stage and still in only limited markets. So I'm just uh, I'm enjoying owning the the product in the in there and and just working. And as as we expand, maybe in these conversations, I'll talk about that more. On my indie side, I released an iOS game three years ago and started porting it to Android not long after and and let it sit for a couple of years and finally picked it back up several months ago when I learned Kotlin and I'm still working on porting it to Kotlin and, and getting real close now, pretty close, but that's not done yet. So it's not ready to be out there. The, the only real recent thing is, is like I talked about the, uh, the, the YouTube presentation, which I will give you the, the link to it that you can put out there to the listeners and hopefully they go give it a listen and Again, give me feedback because it was a lot of it was kind of new to me. So I would love to hear back from people on their own personal experiences because a lot of what I did was anecdotal. So you know, what other people's experiences are with code quality and unit testing mm-hmm. and code coverage and the metrics involved and all those things. So hopefully I can uh, hopefully I can get some more data from from around the world. Good deal. I think I'm going to plug something that I'm working on real quick then. So really, really quickly, devchat.tv slash level up. And what that is, I've, I've been coaching people over the last six months or so, kind of on personal branding, podcasting kind of stuff. And um, I started kind of just coaching people on whatever they needed. And I figured out that I really enjoy helping people kind of figure out what the next stage of their career is, hmm. and then help them figure out what those next steps are. And so for some people, I've just helped them kind of go, oh, I need to start blogging or I need to start podcasting or I need to learn X, Y, and Z and then apply for a new job, right? Or stuff like that. I need to solve this particular problem with my development process. So if you're looking for advice, if you're looking for, hey, how do I figure this stuff out? I'm going to be doing... I I hesitate to say Q&A because it's going to be more kind of coaching style where I bring you on and we'll talk about what your situation is. I'll ask some deeper questions and then we'll try and figure out where you're at and help you figure out what those next stages are or next steps are. I'm looking at doing it Wednesdays about noon mountain time. And if you go to devchat.tv slash level up, it's literally a Zoom webinar register link. The first 10 minutes, I'm just going to do some training. So it's just going to be a, hey, here's how you block out time in your schedule for this or... Here's how you figure out what to learn or how to learn it. Here's how to update your resume. Here's how, you know, stuff like that. And it'll probably come out of what people are asking me about or any other coaching that I'm doing. So I kept hesitating to call it webinars because webinars are sales pitches with half the information you need <laughs> at the beginning. And, and and that's not what I'm doing. I'm, I'm doing training and then I'm doing the Q&A and I'm not doing any sales pitches because I really just want to help people. And so anyway, so if you're interested in that, and you want that kind of help from somebody who's been in the industry for 15-ish years, yeah, devchat.tv slash level up. Uh, one warning, I may change the schedule because my kids are starting school in a couple of weeks. And as their schedule settles, mine might settle too. So I might move the time. But anyway, I'm going to put that out there. I, I, and I mean, we could have done probably half an hour on that topic because that blends in with a lot of this. the reason why I oh, do yeah. Spotify presentation is the whole concept of level up. I've been you know trying to raise oh, yeah. I did the iOS dev series is that exact thing you're talking about of increasing your profile and putting you in a better position for 
getting better positions, you know, as your career advances. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. Well, I ought to get you back on and we should talk about it because, and maybe, okay, you're going to hear this here first, folks. I think I mentioned it on another show somewhere else. I'm rebranding devchat.tv and the new brand is topendevs.com. And the whole, the whole point is people kind of get stuck on that kind of trajectory where they just kind of, they get a little better skills at whatever job they're working at. They get a little more experience and then they get a little bit better pay either at the job they're at or they go find another job and they get paid better there. And then they just kind of rinse and repeat, right? And they figure out that, oh, my next job's going to look like this job and my next paycheck's going to look like this paycheck and my next week's going to look like this week. And then they start figuring out why they're bored at work and mm-hmm. or why they're not fulfilled with work or things like that, right? And some people, they find something else, right? So they pick up marathon running or rock climbing or whatever, right? And so their hobby is their life fulfillment and they support it. They pay for it by going to work. And so they put in their eight to five and they're gone. But other people are looking for something else from their career, right? You mentioned coding's your hobby. That's what you get from life is your family probably. I don't know if you go to church or you have some other community or something like that that's also meaningful to your life. And then, you know, you have your your work and your hobby and things like that. Right. And and I'm kind of in the same boat, right? You know, I have my family, I have church, I have a couple of other things. And then I've got the podcasting and programming that, that kind of fulfill me and then the coaching. And so, you know, I want to help other people kind of get off that kind of uh, kind of up and to the right, slow trajectory and help them find that inflection point where it's like, oh, this really fulfills me and I can get some recognition. I can build some relationships and I can get some real skills that are really going to take me places that I want to get to and have it just go take them, take them up to the moon. Right. Yes. And, and so that's what Top End Devs is. And so I'm going to be pushing the envelope with some of the shows and going, all right, we're not just covering topics just to cover topics anymore. It's what are we, what are we going to cover that's going to take people from here up to, up to the stratosphere? What skills do they need? What, what's new? What's different? What's, what relationships can we build? What, what people can we bring on? How can we teach them how to get recognized for the things that they do for the community? How can we introduce the community to them and them to the community? How do we get them involved in open source? All that stuff so that they can find whatever it is that's going to fulfill them and help them get involved in whatever it is that's going to make their career awesome instead of let them just kind of coast along and sort of do the pizza and ice cream on the couch of programming careers. Sounds like a very worthy undertaking. Yeah, that's what I'm working on. And it's it's lighting me up. So Good. It's always nice to be excited about the stuff you're doing. Yeah. All right. Well, it was great talking to you, Eric. We should definitely do it again. And yeah, I'd love to just, yeah, dive into some more of this uh, this stuff. I'd love to, yeah, just get in and talk about, yeah, what, what lights you up about coding. And you you know from these chats that it doesn't take much to throw another topic out at me and I go on yep. about it for a while. I, I, I love talking about this stuff. So looking yep. forward to the next time. All right. Well, till next time, folks, max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.